Welcome back to episode 10 of the Troublesome Terps podcast. Our topic is still gender in interpreting. Our guest is still Camille Collard, an interpreter and researcher who takes a deep dive into the differences between female and male interpreters. At the end of part one of our episode, Camille gave us some examples for those differences, like pitch, intonation or hedges, speech devices we use when we are unsure, when we want to soften the impact of what we interpret. TLDR, women hedge more. preserve their face but also the face of the other people while men tend to be less polite and there are differences also as well in interpreting in that way so we see that the, really the way we speak it's actually difference even in interpreting and there was not only my colleague but also uh, another researcher Mason uh, who did uh, the same research but for a court interpreting and indeed she also found a lot of differences in politeness in the way men and women handle politeness and also for example uh, women tend to omit uh, markers that would indicate differences difference for example um, saying sir for example when talking to someone they tend to uh, omit markers of hierarchy for example so and to promote intimacy in a way so there are indeed differences in the way we speak, and uh, I don't think we really are aware of that because that's that even if 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 it appears even when we're interpreting, it probably means that we're not aware of that. See, I would slightly disagree with that on the basis of the work of um, Edward Dereker and Claudia Monicelli. That they, they found that in strained situations or in situations where the interpreter's face is threatened. Um, there's a, a very famous case in Ebrid Erika's book where she talks about, um, I think I think it's something to do with, the, there's a speaker who's saying something and actually beginning to blame the interpreters for a communication breakdown. And, and the interpreters kind of basically disown that part of speech, uh, that part of the speech. They also do things like if the speakers are saying things that don't make sense, they kind of, they, they somehow manage to disown that or step back from that as if, you know, I'm just saying what you said, boys, you know, don't, don't blame me. I, I find, that, find that interesting about this idea of, of adding hedges and I wonder if um, it's a strategy, but I think, I, I wonder if the reason why women use it more is perhaps... Um, I know there's some research that women have, and I stress on average, slightly better interpersonal awareness than men do on average. And so certainly my experience of when I've used hedges um, in both liaison and in simultaneous is when I've been aware, oh, this thing could cause a problem. Um, and, and you've got this quick decision of what do I do? Um, on the other hand, I, I wondered, I came across a, an assignment a few months ago, where I actually found myself doing liaison working, stopping the meeting for just about a couple of minutes, just to explain to the two sides why they were disagreeing. And once I explained what was going on, they went, oh, great, and two hours later, they sealed the deal. And it's only now that you've been talking about the different way that men and women speak, I thought, I wonder if, if you were to do an experiment and give that exact same situation to female interpreters and male interpreters, 
whether one side or the other would be more likely to go, hold on a minute, I'm aware that something's not right here, I can fix this, let me do it. Um, I, I wonder if there would be a difference. Sounds very male to me. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but this is, I mean, it's, it, it's a good question about... I can fix this. Uh, yeah, I, but the, there's a difference between I can, I can fix this and I should fix this. That's true. Yeah. I wonder if, if there's something about, you know, do I want, you know, how risky do we, do we perceive our decisions to be? And if you were to give men and women the same decision, would they perceive the same decision as higher or lower risk? It's a good question, but it may explain where men end up and where women end up as interpreters. Yeah, I mean, because why are you saying that as a risk? You're the example you stated. The example I stated, and this is uh, it's actually an interesting example, the example that I gave of stopping the meeting and saying, you're actually disagreeing because you've got different different definitions of the same word. I certainly know of some interpreters who believe that in that situation, it's not your job. Mm -hmm. And the risk of doing that is if you're doing that, you're taking on a responsibility that isn't yours. Yeah. But then also, if you don't, then you're taking the risk of yes. the two not being able to understand each other. So it's where you put your priority. Yeah. And, and I come at it probably from a very male perspective, which is what am I being paid to do here? Mm. Um and and once you understand this is what I'm being paid to do, then it's it's much easier then to go, hold on a minute, wait, wait a minute, let me explain to you how he's defending this, let me explain to you how he's defending this. Right, I can step back again. Um, and, and I would love to see literature on the same situations, because there are situations that crop up in, quite often in interpreting. You know, the a threat to the interpreter's face, or the interpreter has to manage the room, and just to look at how are men and women dealing with the same issue. And does that say something about how they view their role as an interpreter? Yeah. But also, if, if to come back to hedges, there is also, in a way, it's also because you feel like that might be uh, threatening the face of the addressee, but there is also the other uh, possibility is that you're uncertain about what you just heard and you might add hedges to mitigate that. And that also could be explanation why women add more hedges because they're supposed to be less certain than men and that might be also one of the theories why they do that so not only a communicate yeah until men do research and then they lose their certainty about anything <laughs> <laughs> that's actually that's actually a very good point because i wanted to ask you camille a little bit about your work in general i mean because you've you've mentioned a few aspects like the uh the european parliament corpus can you Maybe describe just a little bit how you're approaching the whole thing. Okay, so um, as, I, as I said before, I'm focusing on the cognitive sex differences. So there is there is a big difference between the differences that are linked to sex and the differences linked to gender. Because gender is only assumed and it's only linked to the role you have in the society not because you chose it, but because it was mostly imposed by society. And then there is the biological sex that you're born with. And it's a bit more controversial because we're, we're, we're not afraid of talking about differences of the role of women and men in the society because it seems obvious that there is a difference. But talking about the difference in the brain, 
That's that's a bit more tricky, of course, because we've been. I mean, it, it wasn't in the past uh, where where researchers had no issue saying that men had a bigger brain than women, and therefore were so much smarter. But today, I mean, of, obviously, and that's a good thing. Researchers have tried to stop seeing that as uh, as a difference, and actually now we say that the difference differences between men. Are and between women are actually bigger than the the difference. Be, am I clear here? No, among men, yeah. So the differences among men and among women are bigger than the, the difference be, between them. But still, uh, when when we do tests and we when we do studies, for example, there is one difference that seems to be uh, very significant is the difference in memory. So that women have a better memory than men, and that they are better at uh, verbal skills. So that's something that, in spontaneous language at least, women do have a better memory than men. So when we you ask them to recall a uh, list of figures or, or lists of items, women are better than men. So that was what I mean. Would you? I don't know if you would agree. It's difficult to say on a, an individual basis. Of course, those differences they appear when we have larger samples. So <laughs> I don't know if you can notice them. I mean, they, usually, people say that it's true that they feel like women do have a better memory but in a way it has been proven <laughs> nah. <laughs> now, can, we, can you tell us a little bit about what that research work actually looks like i mean that that would be interesting so that was kind of the starting point of why we decided to look at sex differences. We said, if there is this big difference, it might actually have an implication for interpreting since memory and verbal skills are essential to interpreting. So what we did is we built a corpus of interpretation at the European Parliament and we looked at different languages. So we looked at English, French and Dutch in both directions. And we, for example, the first thing we did is look at décalage. So the time lag uh, between speaker and the interpreter, because that's directly linked to memory. And we tend to think that interpreters work at full capacity at whole time. That's a bit that Gilles, Gilles Daniel Gilles' uh, idea that we are all, always at full capacity. Uh, so if women have a better memory, it might be logical that they would actually wait longer and have a longer decalage. So that was our hypothesis. And in the end, we noticed that there were there was no difference. So men and women actually have more or less the same decalage. There is a difference in the English booth where men have a longer decalage in the English booth. We don't know why. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. Uh, so from French and from Dutch into English, men do have a much longer decalage than women. But we, when you take all languages into account... Uh, then there is no difference in uh, anymore. So that's the first thing that we we noticed. No difference for that. And then we looked at something else, which is what we call disfluencies. So that's the contrary of fluency. So that's all the things you do when your flow is interrupted. So when you hesitate, when you repeat yourself, when you uh, correct yourself, stuff like that. Because that is an indicator of maybe your memory being overloaded. So that might mean that you're at the end of your memory capacities. And we thought that because women have a better memory, maybe they might do fewer disfluencies 
And there we found a difference. As we found a difference in the way that men do actually hesitate more uh, than women. That means that they have more, uh, for example, hums uh, when they speak. So that's the difference we found. And that's the only difference we found because we looked at we pairs as well and full starts and then we didn't find any difference. And when you say you work with the corpus, is that those are transcripts of recorded yes. interpreting? Okay. Yes, we transcribe, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you do all that yourself? No, we, uh, I do it with a team of transcribers. I mean, we have students transcribing for us, which is really great because we have uh, almost 200 interpretations, so that wouldn't be wow. able to, uh, to do it by myself. <laughs> Yeah, so we're really lucky enough that we have students who are doing their master thesis and at the same time using this transcription for their master thesis and therefore transcribing for us. Okay. And I think that there were two more things you were looking at in your yeah, research? Yeah, well, we were yeah. also looking at the interpretation of uh, numbers and there we didn't find any difference either. So men and women uh, more or less uh, interpret 20% of the numbers correctly. More, well, I don't have the exact numbers. Twin? Did you say oh, no, 20%? No, sorry. no, 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 no. Uh, no. <laughs> no. They make me sick in 20% of the time, sorry. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it could have been true, though. That could have been true. <laughs> that so 80% have... of the numbers are correct, which is impressive, isn't it? That's, That's pretty good. Impressive. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it is. That's... <laughs> Eighty percent, eighty percent correct to how many significant digits? I only looked at significant digits because <laughs> most interpreters I know, you know, anything bigger than like a million, you know, instead of like one million one hundred thousand, you know that they'll be like, yeah, just don't. Um, you know, there's there's a running joke. No interpreter into French could last more than five minutes. No, I was really, really. Um, I, I took only. I mean, if it was more or less the same number, I, I, I took it as a correct number. So, but when I'm going into French, which has been my practice, um, I r rely on the word environ. <laughs> um, without that word, I don't think I could survive. I also have, and this this will be interesting. My favourite booth mate is is female, and she loves doing finance talks. Whereas I are theatre directors, you know the kind of arty farty people, you know, wearing sixteen colours and stuff. I, I love interpreting them. Um, and she loves the finance people, so we just arrange our shift. But I wonder if that's something to do with personality. Um, a, a hundred men will show more difference than 50 men. Um, that says a lot to me. It does make me ask... Okay, I'm researching this. I help asking this. Are we even asking the wrong question? Is it something about the personality profile or the the way that people who tend to become interpreters tend to approach life. An interpreter is someone who can be a fake expert on anything within a week. You have the guts to go, nuclear power next week, I can do that. Um, hamster surgery, yeah, I can do that the week after and, and it not bother you. People who just want to be the expert in this field and that's all they want to know. Maybe at the institutions you can get away with that. I don't know very many interpreters who could go, that's it, I'm only doing hamster neurology for the rest of my <laughs> career. Yeah. <laughs> But I think, Camille, you had one more uh, variable you were looking at, which is a very interesting one. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> so yeah, we we had a specific corpus because I was um, I was wor- I'm working with a colleague from uh, University of Saarland, and so we had a specific corpus for German and Dutch, and we actually focus on interpreting into German, which usually we focus on interpreting from German and the difficulties that it is that working from a language where we have to wait for the verb. But here we decided to focus on speaking language where you have to wait for the verb. Because there are researchers that say that actually speaking German, interpreting, speaking German in general or Dutch, because they have also the same issue of waiting for the verb, is actually difficult in a way that it is a load for your memory because yourself you have to keep a lot of items in your memory before saying the verb so it's not only interpreting for german but also working into german is actually adding some load to your work i don't know if you feel it when you're a native speaker you feel it. but it's a bit like playing jenga <laughs> and the whole thing is filling yeah, up and exactly. you're trying you're waiting for the exactly, exactly. <laughs> so you do feel it we feel it <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> so we yeah. So we decided to look at that and see so once again if women do have a better memory, we thought they might actually wait longer before saying the verb when interpreting. So we looked at the difference between men and women and once again there were there was no difference. So women and uh, and men do actually have the same what we call the middle field. So that's everything you put between the first element of a sentence and the verb. For example, between a das and the verb, for example. So all the elements that you can put in there. Uh, women and men do put the same amounts of elements in there uh, for German and Dutch. There is a huge difference between Dutch and German because Dutch is much more flexible. So it means that you tend to put much more elements after the verb, while German is quite... You have to put that much elements before the verb and you're not going to put them after, even though... You're tired and you just want to, you're not. So once again, there were no differences. So the research we're doing actually indicate that in a cognitive side, there there are no differences between men and women. So to come back at the beginning, where we, or even before that, when we were talking between ourselves, like, does it actually matter whether it's a man or a woman? It seems that on a cognitive side, it doesn't actually matter because even though there might have been difference in spontaneous language, it seems that interpreting being a very demanding speech process is actually erases all differences. It might be because of training, I don't know, but it seems like the differences disappear when you're working as interpreters. But as I was saying before, there are differences in the gender side of things so in the way we speak in the hedging in politeness and impoliteness but in a way i think that's quite a reassuring because i think it's more easier to actually correct those differences simply maybe by telling people during training simply telling women maybe be careful because you have this tendency to do that and telling men <laughs> be nice <laughs> yeah be nicer okay <laughs> It's obviously easier to do than when we if we had seen that there are actually cognitive differences really difficult. I mean, of course, you can't really change that. You can train, yeah. you can ask women to train harder or men to train harder, but that wouldn't be really fair. So it's quite of a good news, I guess, that there are no differences. So you're not disappointed or anything with I'm not, the uh, I'm results. Not, I so think far. my supervisor is. I think. <laughs> 
obviously when you find differences always more exciting and people but I don't in my field not really because it's only when I started to actually say that there were no differences that I saw that people were more interested and I had because I had a lot of talks with neuroscientists I asked them, why don't you look at gender differences? Because they were presenting a lot of data and results because neuroscientists are really interested in interpreting because it's a really specific uh, profession and actually feel like they, it shapes your brain in so, so many different ways that it's really interesting to look at interpreting to understand the brain because there's so many things we don't know about the brain or about memory and so it helps understanding the brain. And they don't want to look at it because they're so afraid of the implication it might have if we discover that women are better than men or, or the opposite. They don't want to look at it, but they think it's fascinating and they think we should look at it. They just don't want to be the ones doing it because it's scary. But... So I think now that I don't see any differences, it's much easier for me to talk about it without <laughs> having people telling me, don't do it, don't do it, you know? So I'm, I'm happy in that sense. <laughs> One of the interesting questions that I have about your research is the thing... Well, dear listener, as you can hear, we had a few technical issues at this point in the recording. Jonathan was about to say that he would love to see what happens with context-sensitive prompts. Do men and women react differently? What if the meeting president thanks the translators instead of the interpreters? Do we correct that or not? Because there's, I think there's a lot more decision-making and interpreting than we give it credit for. Yeah, and what what you're talking about is it's in a way how you respect the norms, and that's exactly what also my colleague my colleague at the University of Ghent is looking at. So the differences in how a female and male want to respect the interpreting norm, and he's looking into that. He hasn't he hasn't got any results yet, but he will soon. So if you're interested, you might want to look at it once he's done. And here's another one of Jonathan's troublesome questions. Should interpreters only interpret into their native language? After all, such norms are social and hence up for renegotiation. But I don't know, is that a more male thing to do than a female thing? I have no idea. Or maybe I'm just a troublemaker. It's one of the two. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, it's true that females are supposed to be respecting the norms better, more than males do. But I think also what, what you're talking about is a question of the context. Uh, how yeah, how flexible do you want to be about with those norms and? So my my question, Camille, is uh, is is that now the the end of the research project, or is it going on? Are you looking at other things as well? No, I'm not going to look at other things, but I still need because the um the the results that I I have are not drawn from the final corpus. So I want to add more uh, interpretations to the corpus and redo the whole analysis. But I don't think there would be much more different results because it was already a big corpus. So we just want to add even more because we have more uh, transcriptions. So I'm not going to look at other things. So I'm just waiting for the final conclusions on the final corpus. But that's it. Yeah. But uh, the the research is extremely interesting, but it it kind of brings us back to the question that we discussed in the beginning, why there are so many more women in the profession than men, when obviously they, they do more or less the same thing. So I think that's kind of the question that still lingers in my mind. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's true that Rachel's uh, research gives them the men's perspective, but I don't think there is any research, the same research 
actually interviewing women, so asking them why they got into that profession. That might be also an interesting thing to do if someone has the time. There was a bit of a, a bias in there, maybe, or yeah. I mean, that's that was what her research focused on. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. But maybe it goes back even to school. I don't know. I mean, because at least if you take traditional ideas and role models, I guess, is that foreign languages are always or have always been something for girls. I mean, that's what many people think and say. Um, yes, exactly. So maybe it goes even further back. To be honest, I'm not sure that when students choose to become interpreters, they actually know much about the profession and they're actually able to know that there is, for example, no possibility of promotion. I'm not sure that they already know that when they go for interpreting. So, I don't know. I'm not sure that all those considerations about stability and income and stuff like that actually matter that much. It might, as you said, just be a question of women studying languages and men studying math. I don't know. That's probably true because I had, I had almost no idea what it meant to be an interpreter when I started studying exactly. at university. Yeah. Even when you're in the master, sometimes you have no idea. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. I, I would be fascinated. Um, Sadly, another technical hiccup there. Jonathan was just telling us about the work of Professor Jemina Napier at Harriet Watt University in Edinburgh. She researches, among other things, children who interpret for their parents who don't speak the local language. Napier calls them child language brokers. Interestingly, very few of them actually become professional interpreters. Maybe it's because they're too aware of what working as an interpreter really means. That might be putting them off, who knows. Anyway, Jonathan wants... Interpreters to answer the question, what first attracted you to the profession and what keeps you in now? And uh, that's probably a, a very uh, researchy <laughs> way of uh, <laughs> uh, finishing things up because I think that's what you're supposed to do, right? Is you, you do your research and then you say, well, actually more research is necessary for X, Y, or Z. Exactly. <laughs> so that was just perfect. <laughs> any any final thoughts from you, Alex? No, I think I'm just completely overwhelmed by everything because it's a lot to process. I thought it was <laughs> no, but I thought it was I thought it was absolutely riveting to hear Camille explain everything because I looked at all the the the, the prep material that we got at the posters and everything, and it's something to see it and to read it, but to have her explain it in a way that I actually understood every single thing. No, I thought that was fantastic, Camille. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to hear it. you're interested. So yeah, I think that this, this, was, yeah. <laughs> this was really very interesting. And, and thank you, Camille, for coming on and uh, improving our gender balance on the podcast. <laughs> so we definitely have to do this uh, again in the future. Yeah, come back anytime. Oh, I would be happy to, yeah. So what's what's the time horizon, Camille? I mean, how, how long is this um, keeping you busy? Well, it's actually funny you mentioned that because after this, uh, we finished this podcast, I have to apply for another grant to finish my PhD. So <laughs> we kind of overlooked the uh, deadline with my supervisor and the deadline is tomorrow. Oh, so I'm going to spend okay. oh, wow. the evening writing my project. No, because I'm I have a grant until at least uh, one more year. Okay. It might not be enough, so it's always tricky with because you have to publish articles and you never know when your articles are going to be published, and that's what takes a long time. So as and we we are going to ask for for a bit longer. <laughs> so you never know. I don't know. I don't know. At least one year. Yeah. Great. 
Are you going to to, uh, to be attending any other conferences this year yes. to present the research? Yes, I'm going to Paris to talk about the specificities of uh, interpreting into German. I'm oh, going nice. to Paris <laughs> uh, in April. Yeah. And I might, I might go to Louvain uh, in a few weeks, but not to present, just to listen, because there is an interesting conference on dis disfluencies and stuff like that. So, But presenting will be in Paris in April. Great. Well, listen, uh, thanks again for uh, coming on the show and uh, dealing with the three of us. <laughs> It was easier than expected. <laughs> okay, I'm glad to hear We're on our best <laughs> behavior. <laughs> we, 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 we don't fight, we've all had dinner. <laughs> yeah. so I hope we didn't keep you for too long and you still managed to write your oh, grant Of course, yeah, no, 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 problem. no problem. And we'll keep our fingers crossed for that. Thank you. <laughs> This wraps up our two-part episode about gender in interpreting with our very special guest, Camille Collard. If you have any comments, if you would like to give us feedback, don't hesitate to do so. You can find us on Twitter at TroubledHerbs, or you can just leave us a message on our website, www.troubledherbs.com.